Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Dr. Penel E. Joseph, the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs and Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin to discuss his new book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., published by Basic Books in 2020. Dr. Joseph argues that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, often depicted as advocating rival visions, shared a revolutionary path in search of Black dignity, citizenship, and human rights. Welcome to the podcast, Peniel. Thank you for having me. Your earlier books focused on different aspects of Black power. How did you come to focus on this reevaluation of the political thought of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X? Well, in the course of doing the archival research and reading really wide and vast historiographies of civil rights, Black power, and to do that, you have to read historiographies of urban history, of Black feminism, of... um, ethnic studies, of political history, social history, uh, internationalism, Black internationalism, comparative Black nationalism. Um, I really came to see how central Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were to a reevaluation of post-war American and African-American history and its, its local, national, and global currents. And the more I studied King and Malcolm the more unsatisfied I was with how they're portrayed in much of the historiography, both separately and together. And so through the course of writing um, and editing five previous books, I really wanted to dive deep into both Malcolm and Martin. And I thought the best way to do that would be a dual biography. Do you, as you were reading through, um, and I appreciate the description of all the literatures that you're bringing to the biography, and it, it absolutely shows, um, d- did you feel that your reevaluation came from looking at new sources and materials, approaching what was known with these different tools for interpretation, a little bit of both? I'd say it was a combination. Um, We have the King Papers, both at uh, Martin Luther King Papers in Atlanta, Georgia. We have papers at Boston University, but we have the spectacular uh, published um, seven, eight volumes of papers by Claiborne Carson at Stanford University. Uh, All of that proved very key. We've got his speeches. Um, There's some recordings that uh, I tapped into that the Pacifica Radio Archives had that had not been released in their full, uh, in their full length. Um, so there was a lot of new, and of course there's, um, an extensive, uh, secondary literature on King. So I used that combination. Um, and in terms of Malcolm X, really Malcolm X's papers were only recently made available at the Schomburg, uh, the New York public library, the, the research center there. Um, I used those papers, which are on microfilm and they're very, very extensive, um, and there's some new facets uh, to those papers that have been revealed um, just in the last year or so, uh, including um, parts of the manuscript of the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, that had not been revealed. So I used really a combination of archival and uh, really the vast secondary literature on both of these men, but also their speeches, their interviews, tried to scour uh the archives for anything they said or did and, and use that in my, my reevaluation. You, um, you opened the book with this very dramatic moment 
in March of 1964, when both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King are in the Senate building because the Senate is voting on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which would uh, which would which would try to make access to restaurants, movies, pools, public places um, more equal. And you use this encounter to explore how how each leader fit into the landscape of civil rights organizing in the 1960s. Um, and I was wondering if you could begin, by laying out a bit of of how both men were popularly viewed in that moment in 1964. Yes. So on March 26, 1964, both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. meet for the first and only time at the U.S. Senate uh, while the Senate is filibustering the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was going to basically end racial segregation and public accommodations, but it does more than that. It, it allows for certain groups by uh, race and ethnicity and gender to become protected groups. So 64 Civil Rights Act is very, very important uh, in terms of this anti-discriminatory act that really transforms much of the United States. Um, they're both coming in there from different perspectives in terms of how they're perceived. King is coming fresh off of the March on Washington, about five, six months earlier, August 28, 1963. He's Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Um, he successfully leads efforts to try to desegregate the city of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he's on um, really personal and professional friendly uh, terms with presidents, both President John Kennedy and now President Lyndon Johnson. So he's really this mainstream symbol of the civil rights movement in the United States. Malcolm is coming in as the wild card of the black liberation movement, the black freedom struggle. Uh, He's been uh, for the previous um, number of years since 1952, uh, when he was released from prison, part of the nation of Islam. Um, And he joined that group in prison, but he's been a national representative since 1957. He's leaves that organization early Uh, in March of 1964, and now he's a politically independent um, freedom fighter. And so he comes in as somebody who's perceived as the mirror opposite of Martin Luther King Jr. He is perceived as King's evil twin by the mainstream white press. But the Black press and Black people, especially at the grassroots and in cities such as New York City, Chicago, Detroit, Oakland, Los Angeles, they really embrace Malcolm X as their their freedom fighter, their champion of Black dignity, um, of Black political self-determination. So when they meet that day, they are both in transition. You know, King is transitioning uh, really um, to the high point of his political notoriety and credibility uh, globally, because by the by October of that year, King is going to be announced as the youngest ever winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And he, he's, he's going to be this, this truly global figure from then on. And Malcolm X is really transitioning from the Nation of Islam into this really public global figure who's going to be visiting Africa and the Middle East and Europe Uh, talking about radical Black dignity and talking about transforming the civil rights movement into a human rights movement. So they're they're perceived in different ways at the time, but they really are converging and are going to be in the process of becoming each other's alter egos on matters of racial justice um, throughout that year. You you mentioned in the book that they and just now that they met only once, but in the book you you talk about them persuading each other, and I was wondering, did they have direct communication? Are there letters exchanged? How is it that they they were not close, but that they are nevertheless persuading each other? Well, they persuaded each other in a number of different ways. So. Their lieutenants are in contact with each other. 
probably the biggest go-between is going to be Martin Luther King Jr.'s attorney, Clarence Jones, who knows Malcolm X, as well as being Dr. King's personal attorney, is friendly with Malcolm X, meets with Malcolm X, both in 1964 and, and previously. Um, but they persuade each other because what's so interesting about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. is that they start off as adversaries uh, when we think about this idea of Black citizenship that King is articulating and Black dignity that Malcolm is articulating. Um, and then they become rivals and then they really become complementary in different ways. And each man has the other on his mind much of the time because publicly they are talking to each other at times mentioning each other's names, at times not mentioning each other's names. So an example is that when Malcolm X first becomes a national figure in 1959, the the documentary, uh, which is narrated by Mike Wallace, but is organized by the African-American reporter who's a friend of Malcolm X's, Louis Lomax, the hate that hate produced, uh, turns the Nation of Islam into this phenomenon but they are presented in that documentary as a black supremacist group, a black hate group, an inversion of the Klan. Nation of Islam is not that, even though the Nation of Islam, um, because of its religious mythology, saying that a black scientist invented uh, white people and that white people are preternaturally disposed to doing acts of evil against black people, they traffic in their own racism, even as they also have anti-racism. Um, so when we think about King, King responds to that documentary and says, well, black supremacy is bad as white supremacy. So initially he is thinking of the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X in very cliched terms. Malcolm, in turn, is calling Martin Luther King Jr. and Uncle Tom um, and the best uh, uh, you know, enemy that white America has ever created because nonviolence basically allows black people to be terrorized and lynched and brutalize black women to be raped, black men um, to be punished and brutalized, black children and babies to be killed and murdered by white supremacists because of this philosophy of nonviolence. So that's how they start out in the public conversation with each other. But over time, that conversation is going to be transformed. Part of this is because Malcolm X starts debating. Uh, civil rights leaders who basically serve as surrogates for Martin Luther King Jr. And I show that with Bayard Rustin, who's one of King's closest advisors, who really is the person who schools King about the practical application of nonviolence. After sneaking into Montgomery, Alabama in 1956 in the trunk of a car, Bayard Rustin is the black, gay, radical, uh, social democratic, uh, Gandhi, Gandhiist, uh, who's, who's, uh, serves time in prison as a conscientious objector, and who's never really given his proper due in the civil rights movement because of homophobia. And and Rustin forms a friendship with Malcolm X, because Malcolm is very personally hugely charismatic, besides being very, very brilliant. Um, So when people meet Malcolm X, Black people love him, but white people like him too. Malcolm's a very extraordinary figure, and actually a more charismatic personal figure than Dr. Martin Luther King. King is charismatic as a public speaker. He's very cautious personally. He's very, very cautious personally. So he can come off very, very flat personally, which is why both John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson never really have a very warm relationship with King. Malcolm is different. So when we see uh, uh, Malcolm calling King and Uncle Tom, King saying Malcolm is a reverse racist, over time, Malcolm starts debating James Farmer, who's head of the Congress of Racial Equality, Bayard Rustin, who becomes the head organizer of the March on Washington. And King hears about those debates, but King also hears about both of those men's impression of Malcolm X. And he hears that the Malcolm X who they meet uh, behind the scenes is somebody who King would like. And Malcolm and King also have James Baldwin in common. And James Baldwin is friends with both of them. James Baldwin is you know, one of the 20th century's most important writers, irrespective of race. And uh, Baldwin becomes part of the civil rights movement starting in the late 1950s. He visits and travels with Dr. King as early as 1959. He visits and travels with Malcolm X starting in 1961. 
So Baldwin is probably the biggest public figure who knew both Malcolm X and King the best in American history. And he tells um, each about the other. So they really come to know each other, even though they meet just one time. And the writing in the book lets us have that same experience. You do such a good job of making us feel that likability of Malcolm X as you're describing people's reactions to him. So it's it's, it's one of the great features of, of for the listeners of why to pick up the book is <laughs> thank you is that passion um, and that communication of it. No, it, it's 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 so well done because on the one hand it. It's page turner because it has this um, remarkable narrative uh, organization. On the other hand, it's extremely nuanced and rich because of all of the secondary and archival work that's gone into it. So it's a great, you know, it's a great combination. I, I, I've, I felt, especially reading it over the last two weeks, it was it was an extremely profound read. Um. Let me go back a little bit to so, so that's really really helpful to understand how they're in a sense communicating without actually talking or exchanging letters through 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 and understanding both each other as through their ideas but also through their personalities. What you present all of these different uh, ways of 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 showing the opposites. Um, Dr. King is the insider. Malcolm X is the outsider. Uh, Dr. King comes from this uh, church background, family background, very different from Malcolm X's experience of radicalization in in prison and 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 coming to epiphany and understanding and reading um, nonviolence versus any means necessary. Uh, I mean, we, we're familiar with these. And and you and you place them and you you try to show what's real about them, but then also what's a problem. And you use this these terms, which I thought were really helpful, of Dr. King as the chief defense attorney and uh, Malcolm X as the prosecuting attorney in order to get at the 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 two angles that they come at this, one radical black citizenship and the other radical black dignity. Um, and, and so I was just wondering if you could take us through a little bit of, of those oppositions, though I understand that you, you, you don't want to make too much of them and you definitely see this binary as very incomplete. Yeah, I think um, I'll go through the oppositions and I'll say that what's so fascinating about both of them is that they come to embrace aspects of the other in their lifetimes. So Malcolm starts off as Black America's prosecuting attorney, and he becomes a statesman. And King is sort of a statesman defense attorney who becomes a prosecuting attorney, which is extraordinary. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things when we watch their lives unfold. So Malcolm, when we think about uh, who, who he is, he is Black America's prosecuting attorney charging white America with a series of crimes against Black humanity. So before there was a Black Lives Matter movement, Malcolm X believed that Black Lives Mattered, and he also refused to justify that or argue that fact before white audiences, both nationally and globally, which is different from Dr. King. Malcolm argues that Black people deserve dignity. What he means by that is transforming racial oppression into political self-determination. But for much of his career, Malcolm doesn't feel that the political self-determination for Black people lies in conventional American politics because he feels that conventional American politics are rooted in white supremacy and racial slavery. So he's skeptical about American democracy, which he says is nothing more than American hypocrisy because of the history of anti-Black racism and its ongoing perpetuation in American society in the 1950s and 60s. So that's who Malcolm X is. And that's why Malcolm is seeking global partners. He says he doesn't want to go to Uncle Sam for Black dignity. He wants to go to the United Nations. And Malcolm is trying to both cajole and shame African nations and third world nations into helping him. 
He's cajoling by saying we are all African people and we are blood brothers and sisters. He's shaming by saying to Kwame Nkrumah, to his face, by saying to Namdi Azikiwe, the leader of Nigeria, to his face, by saying to Middle Eastern leaders and African political kingdoms to their faces that if you truly believe in anti-colonialism and human rights for all people, you will support the struggle for Black dignity in the United States. That's who Malcolm X is. King is doing something different. It's a different project. He's making a claim that Black people deserve citizenship. It's radical Black citizenship because in the United States, we've never had equal citizenship. King argues that Black citizenship means more than just the absence of racial oppression and racial segregation. He makes a very profound argument that Black citizenship means the appearance of justice. He defines justice as guaranteed or universal basic income, decent housing for Black people and all people, the end and transformation of racially segregated and economically impoverished ghettos, And really, he defines citizenship as Black people having access to public schools and neighborhoods that are racially integrated, because King argues not only is that where the resources are, but we are all God's children, and there's no moral reason or political reason for racial segregation. Now, he makes that argument in the tones of a defense attorney. He defends Black humanity to white people but he also defends white humanity to black people. And that's very, very profound because King tells white people, black people don't want any revenge or any recrimination. They want human rights and to be part of this beloved community. And he tells black people that all of the racial violence that has happened to them doesn't mean that white people are not good people. And it doesn't mean that this nation can't be redeemed. That's why King makes the argument that the beloved community can actually redeem the soul of America through shared sacrifice from white people and black people by looking at each other's humanity and changing policies and politics, but also hearts and minds at the same time. So as these two visions, one focused on citizenship, the other on dignity, are, are articulated by both of them, you, you describe in the book how King changes over time. And I was wondering if you could um, um, elaborate a little bit more on, on why King comes to change, not to give up what he believes about Black citizenship, but to expand it and how it's related to what Malcolm X is saying and doing. Yeah, they both come to see you need radical Black dignity and radical Black citizenship. And one of the things that I argue in The Sword and the Shield is that the person who is most profoundly affected and impacted by Malcolm X's assassination is Martin Luther King Jr. And we never really think about it that way. Martin Luther King Jr. becomes the political sword and not just the nonviolent shield in the aftermath of Malcolm X's assassination. And he does this for a number of reasons. I mean, one of the things he sees uh, after Malcolm's assassination and the political rebellion in Los Angeles, in the Watts neighborhood in Los Angeles, that happens August 11th, 1965, five days after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, Dr. King comes to realize that the great society for all its ambitions is not going to provide enough resources for the depth and breadth of both black deprivation in the United States, but also the awesome power uh, and persistence of white supremacy and institutional and structural and systemic racism in the United States. So Dr. King is an extraordinary figure because I think most people, once they realize that, would still continue along the same track that they were doing and say, well, I'm going to hope for political reform. I'm going to hope for the best. I'm this insider who's won the Nobel Peace Prize, Time Magazine Man of the Year. Lyndon Johnson calls me regularly. I'm just going to hope for the best. He does not do this. What he does is he starts to think and really mobilize towards Black citizenship and dignity. He starts to talk about Black political self-determination 
And after Malcolm X is assassinated, King starts to become the most vocal critic of white supremacy. Certainly there are black power activists like Stokely Carmichael, who I've written about, but King marches arm in arm with black power activists in Mississippi. And it's Dr. King who's saying that um, racism is running wild in the halls of the U.S. Congress. It's Dr. King who's saying in 1967, the biggest problem in the United States is white racism, which is producing chaos in our cities. And then white government officials say that there would be peace if not for the chaos that white people are starting. This is Martin Luther King. So it's an extraordinary transformation. It's easily one of the um, most unique things in American history, uh, in our history of, of social movements and political uh, activism, that somebody makes this kind of transformation. He always, always maintains, as I write, his commitment to nonviolence, but he's now committed to utilizing nonviolent civil disobedience for a political revolution in the United States. He wants a redistribution of not just resources, but of justice in pursuit of Black dignity and citizenship. And what's easily so extraordinary about King, the last several years of his life, he goes from being the most popular Black American on the planet Earth among whites and Blacks to really being somebody who's vilified in many quarters in mainstream America, somebody who's anti-war, anti-imperialism, his critique of racial capitalism, his critique of inequality and poverty in the United States, he really becomes this person who's more marginalized, even as he's trying to organize this multiracial coalition that's going to be led by Black people to try to transform and reimagine American democracy in order to create that beloved community. You do a great job in the book of always showing the rest of the civil rights landscape um, rather than just pretending that these two leaders are are all that um, the movements consist of. What King is making these these radical changes in his thinking are other civil rights organizations coming along with him? Are they fighting him? Are they standing by with their mouth agape? What, what, what's happening with the other civil rights groups? Many groups are skeptical of what King is doing. Um, there's a great anecdote where Whitney Young, who's really one of the most important uh, mainstream leaders of the era, uh, head of the Urban League, tells Dr. King that his speech against the Vietnam War was the wrong political move. And King comes out against the Vietnam War on April 4th, 1967, a year to the day before he's assassinated at the Riverside Church in New York. And it's really an extraordinary speech where he talks about there's a, there comes a time when silence is betrayal and that the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, but that we can transform American democracy in the world King says it's going to be a bitter but beautiful struggle. (laughs) Extraordinary speech, extraordinary. Um, Whitney Young says he shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have said it. He's he's conflating those two issues. And in that sense, Whitney is very close to Lyndon Johnson, very close to the Johnson administration. New York Times says the same thing. And Dr. King tells Whitney Young, he says, Whitney, that line of thinking may get you a foundational grant, but it won't get you into the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I think that's extraordinary. No, it's amazing. No, it's amazing. Uh, And it's funny. uh, uh, Dr. King came to St. Joseph's University a few months before uh, he was assassinated. Uh, He was invited by the students who somehow he accepted this invitation. He spoke other places in Philadelphia more famously at the time. And, And in talking to some of the students who were there, they said very few people showed up because at that point was when King was being questioned, uh, again, having come out against the war in Vietnam, having uh, being being critical of the United States. Uh, so it was sort of funny to be having this 50th anniversary celebration and then have the actual people who were listening in the audience say, well, I had a lot of friends who just wouldn't show up for, for Dr. King, uh, which was not something our students really understood um, you mentioned earlier uh, brothers and sisters, and, and I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. saw the role of women in 
both radical black citizenship and radical black dignity? It's going to evolve over time. They're both men of their time deeply uh, implicated in a, a conception of black freedom as really black patriarchy. Um, Malcolm, over time, is going to come and see, especially once he leaves the Nation of Islam, uh, that black women have a hugely important role and co-leadership uh, of the movement. So he starts to say that Fannie Lou Hamer is the foremost freedom fighter uh, in America. Um, in one of his last interviews, he says that when he visited Africa, one of the things he noticed about the most progressive African nations were that all the women were leading alongside of men. So, and, and then finally, in his final organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, he's got Lynn Shiflett and these different Black women who play major roles in organizing the OAU, writing up its charter, facilitating um, having real power. Um, so he's a work in progress, you know, and I think probably publicly he makes more strides than Dr. King. Um, uh, Dr. King is coming out of a Black church tradition that is uh, very, very sexist, that's deeply misogynistic. Um, he doesn't have other Black women who are co-leaders around him. Really, with the big exception is going to be Coretta Scott King. And this doesn't mean he doesn't have Black women who are leaders in SDLC, but in terms of who King is going to treat as such. Ella Baker, uh, who he could have learned so much from, um, he felt threatened by, and you know she didn't like him either. So they And Ella Baker is the founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, I think one great anecdote with Dr. King is that when he's organizing the Poor People's March, uh, Black women who are welfare uh, rights activists and organizers really have to school him and tell him that, you know, uh, he needs to listen to them. Uh, He doesn't know about this welfare rights uh, movement. He doesn't know about the bills in Congress and how it's going to affect these Black women. Um, And he he apologizes and says, yeah, you know, he's right, they're right, and he has to listen. So I think that neither of them understood feminism, neither of them understood uh, uh, this critique of patriarchy, uh, that we're going to see with groups like the Third World Women's Alliance and and, and second wave Black feminism uh, during this period. I, I would say that I think they were open enough that if they had lived past 1965 in Malcolm's case, past 1968 in King's case, they would have um, they would have embraced those those movements because they were interested in human rights uh, and dignity and citizenship for all people. Um, I didn't ask you earlier you, I, I, about, about how Malcolm X came to change as well, because you mentioned that both of them change, and the book shows how both of them begin in one place and end in another. Can, can you spin out a little bit about, about how it is that Malcolm X begins to see some of what King is arguing and how he, without with without stepping away from his commitment to Black dignity, expands his own thinking. Yes. So one of the things I argue against uh, throughout the book is just cliches about both of these these iconic uh, historical figures. So I argue against this idea that, you know, Malcolm X has an epiphany uh, during the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca in 1964 and realizes not all white people are bad. All these things are cliches, and historically, they're just untrue. Malcolm understood uh, from even visiting the Middle East in 1959 that there there were white, blue-eyed Muslims. He understood that. Malcolm knew that not all white people were bad. Malcolm was part of an organization, the Nation of Islam, that had a different political and religious line. And while he was in that organization, like many of us do who are part of political organizations that we use to amplify our voice, he did not really publicly dissent from that, even though privately he had major criticisms of the Nation of Islam. So when we see Malcolm, by 1963, uh, Birmingham, and we see Malcolm's in Washington, D.C., when Birmingham is unfolding, and 63, one of the things I argue in the book is this really important, you know, cataclysmic year. I think we talk about 1968 a lot, but 1963 is just as important for what's going on nationally and globally. And so when we think about 63, Birmingham really um, shows Malcolm, Birmingham and the March on Washington, 
the effectiveness of King as a political mobilizer. He is longing to get into the fight. He is, uh, uh, he's, he's in Washington, D.C. as temporary head of Muslim Mosque Number 4, um, and he is constantly talking about Birmingham, racial injustice, constantly criticizing John F. Kennedy, uh, American democracy. Um, and really, it's Birmingham and the combination of the March on Washington, even as he calls it a farce on Washington, that really is part of the cleavage where he's going to leave the nation of Islam. Um, he comes to see that you do need some access to uh, political institutions. Um, the Nation of Islam's notion of not being on the front lines of the freedom struggle um, is very disappointing for him. And he's constantly defying Elijah Muhammad. He actually does participate in demonstrations. And that's one of the things that um, the cliches have wrong, too, this idea that Malcolm X never participated in demonstrations. He's at demonstrations. And when reporters say, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm just observing. But it's not true. He's at the demonstration because he right. wants to be in the thick of things. He marched, He marches with 1199 SCIU, a labor union that Dr. King supports too, that my mother was a part of. Um, he, he, he marches in Washington, D.C. Uh, when, when Bobby Kennedy gets on a, 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 a top of a car um, and there's 3,000 people there. Uh, in, in June of 1963. So Malcolm's in the thick of the fight. He's in the thick of the fight. Um, after the March on Washington, they ask him, what did he think about King's speech? And he says, I was, I was moved by King's speech. I was moved by what I saw. But then he says it wasn't enough, right? And he says they should have used the nonviolent civil disobedience to paralyze the city. Well, two years later, Martin Luther King Jr., writing his essay, Beyond Los Angeles says that that's what the next stage of the movement is going to do, is going to use nonviolent civil disobedience to paralyze cities. He doesn't mention Malcolm X, but that's what Malcolm X had said in the summer of 63. By 1964, when Malcolm X is speaking to Robert Penn Warren, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist of all the King's men, for a book, Who Speaks for the Negro, that's going to come out in 1965, he tells Robert Penn Warren that him and Dr. King have the same goals. And Robert Penn Warren, who's a pretty conventional white liberal, says, well, what do you mean by that? And Malcolm X says, Dr. King wants human dignity, and I want human dignity. We have the same goals. We have different methods. And this is extraordinary. There's, there's, uh, only, one, um, there's only one uh, newspaper that when Malcolm X publicly says he supports a school boycott um, that Martin Luther King Jr. supports as well. They say that uh, Malcolm X is seeking freedom like King, but faster. And so when we think about 1964, not only does he tell Robert Penn Warren that, not only does he say that he supports the school bus boycott where there's going to be a half a million uh, Black school children who boycott uh, the racial segregation in New York public schools and the lack of resources and the poor quality of education that they're receiving in 1964. And King supports that boycott too. Not only that, and they meet on March 26th, but Malcolm X, and this is one of the things I found in my research, was that he actually sits down next to Andy Young, uh, Ambassador Andy Young, future, future mayor of Atlanta, Andy Young, one of King's uh, closest lieutenants, in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, when Dr. King gives his speech in Harlem on December 17th, 1964, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, he praises that speech a few days later in Harlem. And then finally, in February, he visits Selma specifically to speak at Tuskegee and then go to Selma and see Dr. King. Dr. King is in jail for voting rights activities, and he gives a speech sandwiched in between Andy Young and Coretta Scott King, and he tells Coretta Scott King after his speech that he's there just to help Dr. King, that he, he admires Dr. King and the work he's doing, and he's in Selma to make sure people know that if the ballot isn't gotten, there's going to be other alternatives. So all this shows us, and certainly the big rhetorical statement is the 1964 speech, the ballot or the bullet, where for the first time he says that voting rights are important, 
But he says they're important, not because he believes in American democratic institutions. He believes in Black people and their ability to wield this on their own behalf. It's remarkable throughout the book, which which is is trying to say that these this myth, this binary myth, has actually been dangerous because it had a political afterlife. It wasn't just about what was happening in the moment. It's it's what's happening now. We we don't understand the United States because we don't understand who these two people were. Really, we only understand this myth. One of the things that I I found fascinating was how you show the creation of the myth through the white press. And, you know, we have a way of talking about how, well, in the past, you know, we had these three stations, uh, ABC, NBC, we, we had this unified vision of what America was, and this has been destroyed by, you know, cable channels. But but the book and other books that deal with uh, the black press show this is not the case at all. In fact, there are two really different narratives uh in in the different outlets, and it's the white press that seems very invested in these extremes. Absolutely. We have great scholarship on the Chicago Defender and just the black press, and we're thinking about papers like the Amsterdam News, the Pittsburgh Courier, um, the Los Angeles Herald-Dispatch, um, just so many different uh, black papers have a completely different narrative of black politics and they really humanize black politics and black people. They understand black radicalism. And what's interesting about those papers, those papers advocate both black dignity and citizenship because the black community has always, if we think about freedom as a multiple uh, choice uh, test, usually the answer is all of the above. You know, people want an end to segregation, but they also want black businesses. Um, They want voting rights, um, but they also want to create wealth. Uh, They want to end poverty, um, but they're also interested in um, entrepreneurship. So when we think about uh, this idea of how these two figures were portrayed, the black press uh, really has a much more complicated uh, understanding, especially of Malcolm X, you know, and even when we look at the black press and how they think about King, the black press thinks of Dr. King as, yes, he's a statesman, but they also laud him for being a militant. Um, They think of him as somebody who is speaking truth to power even in the late 1950s. So when we think about the white press versus the black press, there's a really much more sophisticated understanding at the granular level of, of the complicated nature of black politics. Both Dr. King and Malcolm X realize that violence is part of what is contributing to the maintenance of this racial caste system, this unequal positioning for Black citizens. They they both address police brutality, and that just jumped out at me more because of when I'm reading this book, as opposed to when you were writing it, or they were saying those words. And And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how you think this myth and busting this myth helps um, us negotiate the moment that we're in, in which we are making some attempt to understand the relationship between police brutality and violence and inequality again, since we still haven't solved the problem. Well, I believe that both Malcolm X, um, and I'll start with him, understood that the criminal justice system then and now was a gateway to panoramic systems of racial and economic inequality. Malcolm understood this because he had been incarcerated. Malcolm understood this because of the racial trauma. When he was six, his father was killed by white supremacists in in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, His mother placed in a psychiatric facility for most of his adult life. And so Malcolm really understood the lower frequencies that political injustice and white supremacy operated in. And so for him, you know, we have trial transcripts of Malcolm testifying on behalf of Muslims who are brutalized by the police, whether it's in Buffalo, New York, Rochester, um, Los Angeles, California. 
So there's a real um, deep history here. And with Dr. King, I think King comes to understand aspects of incarceration and criminal justice um, and the injustice of that system just through being arrested for nonviolent demonstrations. You know, all the times King is ever arrested are illegal and unconstitutional and unethical arrests because they're arrests um, when somebody is trying to desegregate uh, uh, facilities or cities that are um, illegally segregated. So all those, and right now people are talking about taking some of those arrests off of the books in Atlanta and other places because we know they were wrong, not just morally, but also legally they were wrong. And so when we think about both King and Malcolm, they connect to this idea that we're facing all right now with not just cr- the criminal justice system, but saying that it is really connected to these this kaleidoscope of inequity in the United States that's deeply rooted in caste. And I would add that these both of these activists were also, their, their political thought and activism and their reach was global in scope. So Dr. King visits Um, Ghana in 1957. He spends a month in India studying racial caste in India. Um, He he, he travels very, very broadly, and he's committed to ending apartheid in South Africa, ending poverty around the world. And so when King comes out against the war in Vietnam, he's not only thinking about racial and economic justice in the United States. King is on record of saying that we are all part of what Dr. King calls the world house. So his beloved community is not just a project of the American nation state, it's a global project. And Malcolm is the same way. When Malcolm is saying civil rights is human rights, he wants a reformation of the criminal justice system in the United States, but also globally. But I think it's very instructive for us to see that the criminal justice system, even in the 1950s and the 1960s, was unbelievably um, unfair and onerous and violent um, against Black communities to the point that both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. at different times tried to negotiate with both the New York Police Department and the LAPD to try to reform both of those police departments, to try to have civilian police uh, review and authority over those police departments. They were both rebuffed um, over 50 years ago. And so when we think about the, the issues that we're facing now, if we think they're intractable, certainly Malcolm and Martin, they're connected to trying to transform criminal justice in their own time, but they connected that transformation to not just national politics and lo- local politics, but also to global politics as well. No, it's, it's, uh, it's astonishing. It's depressing to see the consistency, but, but I think the book goes a long way to pulling back layers to make it clearer at least some of what needs to be done. And, and I wondered, do you see both legacies in the landscape of 21st century civil rights organizations and civil rights narratives? I mean, as, as you're listening to the speeches that we're all hearing, uh, do Do you see people moving beyond this cliche separation? Do you you see what you you hope for, the sort of the mixing that both Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X came to at the end of their lives? Yes, we're seeing it in the social movements um, that have sprung up all around us, especially under the banner of Black Lives Matter. We're seeing this movement for radical Black dignity and radical Black citizenship simultaneously. So we're seeing the the nonviolent civil disobedience of King, but we're also seeing the radical structural critique um, of the systemic nature of both racism and economic inequality of Malcolm X. And really in the 21st century, what's extraordinary about these social movements, they've added um, this idea of intersectional justice and race, class, gender, sexuality, Uh, gender identification, all of it, um, and saying that we need to think about this in relation to how we're going to transform these institutions. So I think it's a hopeful moment. I think I wrote the book so that people could have a better understanding of what the the social, political, historical context they're operating in. And so when we think about Malcolm and Martin, you don't have to think you're either team Malcolm, and that means you're the revolutionary, (laughs) or team Martin. 
And that means you're the pragmatist. What you see is that these are two revolutionaries and we actually need both. You need that dignity and you need that citizenship. And really, I think above all, they offered us in the 60s a generational opportunity um, to be what Dr. King said, true to what we put on paper. King said the greatness of America lies in the right to protest for right, but he believes in the Declaration of Independence. He believed in the Constitution. And it's King who, in letter from Birmingham jail, says that the young people being arrested in Birmingham in 1963 are one day going to be lionized as heroes for bringing us all back to those great wells of democracy that were dug deep by the founding fathers. So Black people have always believed in democracy more than uh, than other Americans. And they've, they've loved the country even when the country refused stubbornly to love them back. And I think right now we have another generational opportunity to really right all these wrongs, um, to fix so much inequality. Um, and to, to do that, we have to deeply empathize with each other. We have to speak truth to power and we have to recognize our innate humanity when we look at each other. And I think Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., when we get away from the cliches, they are um, two of the most iconic uh, leaders that provide us a framework uh, for how we're, we want to live in the future to create that beloved community um, and to have a society that's free of, of injustice uh, for all people. Peniel, what's your next project? I'm working on a book on 1963 <laughs> and the civil, the civil rights movement in 1963. I think it's a fascinating year, and I think it's a year that is as important as 1968. Is it going to be a biography of a year? What's the, are you willing to share or have you figured out? Yeah, I, you know, I think, I, yeah, I think it's going to be, there's going to be multiple narrative strands. I think we're going to have um, uh, different, different people who are a part of it. Uh, certainly King and Malcolm, but Lorraine Hansberry, uh, Gloria Richardson, other other folks. So it's that year um, and what that year can can teach us, because it's really this important year. Um, it's a violent year, but it's also a hopeful uh, year as well. So I just think 63 is, is an enormously important year. And it tells us a lot about the way in which we live now as well. Well, it sounds terrific. Um, I, I want to recommend to listeners that this is a book uh, that is accessible, that this is a book that anyone can pick up and read. It's great for students because it provides so much of the contextualization before making the sophisticated arguments. It's uh, remarkably rich in terms of the literature and the documentation that it's bringing to it. So um, find the sword and the shield. Uh, the Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. This is published by Basic Books in 2020. It's uh, available on the Basic Books website, on our normal providers uh, that people use, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Uh, I'm encouraging people to support their brick-and-mortar stores by using bookshop.org or just uh, ordering directly from the bookshops so that they're still in business after the pandemic. Um, Peniel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I very much enjoyed the book, and it was just a pleasure to get to ask you questions about it. Susan, thank you so much for having me. This this was great. It's a great conversation, um, and, and I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. <laughs>